Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Good to see you and welcome. Welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Well, ears are still burning and tongues are still wagging after CNN's raucous town hall with Donald Trump. CNN claims it was a huge success, having pulled in 3.1 million viewers. But was the big winner really Donald Trump, who got the chance to repeat all the lies he'd already told on Fox News on yet another network. It wasn't all rosy at all for Trump this week. His CNN appearance came just one day after a New York jury found him liable for sexually assaulting and defaming columnist Eugene Carroll, whom Trump denies ever having met. Trump is appealing that verdict. And the next day, in another New York courtroom, another New York Republican ran into legal trouble. Congressman George, George Santos, a.k.a. the talented Mr. Santos, charged with 13 counts of fraud, money laundering, and more. And then, despite a White House summit with four congressional leaders, the White House and Congress seem no closer to preventing the economy from going over the fiscal cliff before the end of the month. Whoa, so much to talk about. So here today to help us sort it all out, Sabrina Siddiqui, White House correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Hello, Sabrina. Morning, Bill. Abby Livingston back with us, writer for the Almanac of American Politics. Hi, Abby. Glad to be on the show. Thank you. And Jeff Dufour, editor-in-chief of the National Journal. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Bill. So um, let's start, (laughs) hard not to start there, with what made the most noise this week, if not the most news, that CNN town hall with Donald Trump. Uh, And CNN's president, Chris Licht, as reported in the New York Times this morning, put out a statement yesterday saying, that CNN provided a great public service to all Americans by airing the town hall with Donald Trump Wednesday evening. Great public service for all Americans. Uh, uh, Sabrina, let's start with you. Do we agree with that? (laughs) Um, Not a lot of people did agree with that. I think that what we saw over the past week with the town hall was entirely predictable. We already know who former President Trump is, and it's not that he has ever stopped making these false claims about the election um, or talking about or reiterating or doubling down on his Access Hollywood comments. So this idea that there was news made, I think, um, is dubious because, you know, he's continued a lot of these, a lot of the lies and falsehoods uh, that he told in the town hall any time that he's made a public appearance or through through Truth Social, what he now uses instead of Twitter. You know, I, I think the challenge that it really underscored is after all these years, it's just not clear how to cover Trump, uh, right? right? I mean, he is the front runner for the Republican nomination for president. 
he is a former president, uh, now obviously facing uh, cr- criminal investigations. Um, he's he's still the de facto leader of the Republican Party. And so, it, you know, there's one camp that says you just need to ignore him. Now, I don't think that's possible if he's going to be on the ticket. Um, but then when you do interview him, how do you do it in a way where it's not just a platform for him to um, air these lies? And I think, you know, the other big piece of it, and we can talk about it more, was the crowd, right? They said it was a Republican primary voters and Republican-leaning independents. It was quite clearly mostly Trump supporters in the crowd, which gave it the air of a rally. I mean, these are people who were cheering when he called Caitlin Collins, the moderator, nasty. Uh, and so the spectacle of it all, I think, is really challenging for CNN. And again, I think it's going to pose some real questions for how the media covers Trump going into 2024. Yeah. And Abby, there are people who said ahead of time, uh, I must admit I was one of them, that CNN should not even have scheduled this town hall, at least not the way they did. Um, and people saying that after the event as well. Um, what do you think? Was it a mistake to hold this town hall in the first place? Well, I think, and in full disclosure, I worked at CNN about 10 years ago, but um, I think the key thing here was town hall. And I I was actually on the other side of this. I don't think we can ignore him, just like Sabrina said. Um, And I also worked at NBC News with Tim Russert, and he was a master in this format, and he had a very famous and consequential interview with David Duke. So I don't think you can ignore these people uh, at that level, but I I think it was the format. Um, And in it has been done well before with Trump. And I think you can point specifically at Jonathan Swan now at the New York Times, then at Vice, excuse me, uh, Axios. And um, but I think the key here is not doing it live and having it pre-taped where you can come in and you can break it up. I have interviewed politicians and I've been filibustered and it is incredibly hard. I think there's a lot of armchair quarterbacks on Twitter who've never done this sort of thing. And especially with Trump, but I, I I was actually optimistic about this. Um, I, I was out of pocket when it aired and was sort of startled when I turned on Twitter and just like the volume, the volume of criticism was so high that I think at times some news did get lost. I mean, there may be another E. Jean Carroll lawsuit because of this interview. There are things that could go into these, this statements he Mm -hmm. made that could factor in investigation. So I, I I just think it was very poor strategy. And I, you know, I I hope our industry can really be much more strategic and thoughtful and also protect the reporter doing the interview in a much better way. Yeah. Jeff, I I love your take as a, as a senior manager now in your position uh, as editor. Um, How might you have structured it differently? Is, was it possible at all uh, by the way, I just want to add, I think we all agree that Caitlin Collins did a magnificent job, but she was also given an impossible job. How might they have done it better, Jeff? First of all, I'm going to offer a confession, Bill. Can we step into the confession booth? Yes. Uh, like, like you're, like you're, unlike yourself, I was not one of these people ripping into CNN ahead of time. I okay. was actually cautiously yeah. optimistic about this. I thought if Caitlin did well, this could turn out okay as a matter of journalism. Yeah. And now I feel like a fool. A hopelessly naive fool. That's what I feel like now, because I was so, as it turns out, uh, wildly optimistic about how this how this went. Um, yeah, as you said, I, th- I think Caitlin did just fine. None of this is primarily her fault. Um, just like Abby said, she took the words out of my mouth. The, the format set her up to fail. If you can't do it pre-taped with Trump, 
you at least have to number one, stay on the offense and be the aggressor. Um, he was on offense the entire time, just steamrolling over her uh, too many lies to fact check in real time. And not only that, you have to bring the receipts. Um, you've got to put his statements up on the screen about terminating the constitution, for instance, mm. so he mm. can't then deny them. Yeah. Um, and, and you can't do any of that when you're giving up the microphone every five minutes to a member of an audience that's turns out very sympathetic to Trump. Um, it, it just, there's, there's no way to, to, to do what needed to be done in this, in this format. By the way, that, that would have been the, back to what Abby said, uh, that would have been the Tim Russert uh, MO, if you will, right? He, yes. would have had, he would have had the tape ready, and if Donald Trump said, Tim would have said, let's roll the tape, right? Yep. <laughs> and let's, the put, let's put up the tweet. Yep. Yeah, the evidence would have been, would have, would have been that right there. Sabrina, I would come back. You, you raised something which I thought is an important factor here. Do we know, I mean, CNN said ahead of time, this was a Republican primary debate, so therefore only Republicans would be in the audience, granted. But they said it would be a representative audience of Republican voters from New Hampshire. It was not. Do we know anything about who selected the audience? And was it the Trump campaign that picked them? So my understanding from reporting that I've seen, and I also need to make a disclosure that until I, up until November, I was, all, I was working at CNN as a political analyst. I'm no longer <laughs> with them, so I'm not speaking in any... Uh, capacity with any internal yeah. knowledge here. It's just through reporting that I've seen. Um, they said that they worked with organizers on the ground, and that included local Republican Party officials. Um, when it came to the Trump campaign, they gave them about, I don't know, let's say 20 tickets to hand out, but those people were not invited to ask questions. Mm -hmm. um, the majority of the crowd, they say, uh, were selected based on consultations with uh, political groups uh, on the ground. Now, they didn't want to reveal too much about the methodology because they said that they, when they do future town halls, they don't <laughs> want voters to figure out how to game the system. Although I feel like the system was already gamed <laughs> in this town hall because clearly it was majority Trump supporters. Yeah, I mean, I don't yeah. know if these Republican leaning independents said that they were you know, lukewarm toward Trump, but turns out they're actually fans. I mean, this is really complicated though, because a lot of people don't yeah. want to admit that they are Trump supporters even now. And so in a lot of polls, there are people who claim to be independents. And I've done this, we've done this through Wall Street Journal polls where you call them back because you're interviewing them for a story. And it's very clear that they are Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. Um but they don't like they call like to call themselves independent. So I think look, the crowd's always that's why the format was flawed. Okay, you know, CNN has done these town halls in the past, and they will probably do more for, you know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis when he's running, or, you know, we'll see if they do it for uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, or, um, you know, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who's, who's weighing his run. Um, but I, so I don't think the town hall format is going to go away, and I don't think it'll look the same for other Republicans, because Trump has this unique draw with his supporters, right? They like, it's like right. a... It's, watching a sport it's like watching a wrestling match that's what they want to see i think that to abby's point um you know and, and jeff said this too i, I think the format was a problem i actually would say with trump though i don't even think if you had you know the tape running against the backdrop of the town hall that it makes a difference with his supporters i think you know because it just kind of just dis distilled once again that there are two realities here and one is where facts 
and and the truth live. And the other is where all of these people live, right? After everything that has been said and done, there is still a a majority of the Republican primary electorate still believes the election was stolen, the 2020 election, even though there's just an abundance of evidence that that's not true. So I think a taped interview would really be the only way to do it. And the Mm -hmm. people who tune in um, where you've you've fact checked and you've you've done it in, in more of a controlled format you know, there are people who tune in might might look at it and have a and have a serious look at what he's saying and 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 treat it with some skepticism. And his supporters are just going to continue to live where they are. <laughs> uh, Jeff, I don't know what's wrong with you, but <laughs> I I have never even had a had a TV hit on CNN. But Fox, MSNBC, yes, never on CNN. So yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me. Sorry about that, uh, Abby. You mentioned that there was some there was some news made uh, on different issues. I want to uh, uh, play a a few clips from that town hall here and get your reaction. Uh, Starting with you, Abby, uh, here's a little exchange on um, presidential documents. When it comes to your documents, did you ever show those classified documents to anyone? Not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified after. Not, Not that I can think of. Let me just tell you, I have the absolute right to do whatever I want with them. Hmm. Uh, Abby, does that seem to be the case? <laughs> I mean, I'm I am not an attorney or a prosecutor, but I have to think uh, Jack Smith was watching this, and <laughs> I, I, I mean, not really. And yeah. Um. So, th- I mean, I do think there was a value in this, um, in the forum, in that sense. I mean, he has been. I mean, his unfiltered commentary caught up with him with Eugene Carroll, and I just. He is running his mouth in a way. I had a lawyer friend tell me he is the worst client I've ever seen. And so he is going on the public record saying things, and these things can blow up in his face in litigation. And it just seems like there is an onslaught of litigation coming at him where this could be uh, have to be reckoned with. Yeah, and I think it's pretty clear, as we've seen, that the Presidential Records Act does not give the president that on. Uh, unbridled authority. Uh, Not really. Yeah. <laughs> God. Uh, so, Jeff, uh, let's talk about January 6th, which we all remember. Trump remembers it uh, a little differently. Do you have any regrets about your actions on January 6th? January 6th, it was the largest crowd I've ever spoken to, and that was because they thought the election was rigged. And they were there proud. They were there with love in their heart. That was an unbelievable, and it was a beautiful day. Beautiful day, Jeff. Um, that is not the way that I remember it. It's not the way that uh, my my people who were up there covering it remember it. It's certainly not the way the Capitol Hill uh, police remember it, who were beaten and maced and uh, and and stomped on. Um, this is this is a real it's a real problem for for journalism in terms of how we how we break through on this. Um, but it's potentially a real problem for Trump and his campaign going into 2024, because this is not an issue that he that serves him well, I think, to keep going back to. And yet he keeps bringing it up. He keeps defending it. He keeps repeating the same untruths about January 6th, which just perpetuates the story. And every time mm-hmm. you perpetuate the story, um, it, it, it doesn't look good for him. He's increasingly Trump and the Republican Party in general are increasingly speaking to rather than a big tent where you're trying to expand your tent. They're increasingly speaking to a smaller tent. And the, the, the voters that he is speaking to when he talks about 
the rigged election and January 6th being a beautiful day is a small slice of voters, very, very loyal to him, but certainly not the kind of voters who are going to decide things in 2024. Yeah. By the way, I must say, I was a little stumped by his claim that this was the largest crowd he had ever spoken to ever. I thought Sean Spicer told us that the <laughs> inaugural crowd was the largest crowd ever in the history of humankind. But anyhow, uh, I, don't, I don't mean to be too picky there. And we, uh, no, and we <laughs> also see we, we also saw in this how not only uh, the Biden campaign was licking their chops, uh, basically saying that this is uh, attack ads that are writing themselves, but even the DeSantis campaign uh, DeSantis's PAC put out a tweet ticking off about 12 things about what he did or didn't do on January 6th, how the election was rigged, the sex abuse case, um, the documents at Mar-a-Lago. And then at the end of the tweet, they say, how does this make America great again? Mm, yeah. Uh, so he is absolutely putting ammunition in the hands of his enemies. Lots of stuff there. And so, Sabrina, you were one of two reporters who traveled with uh, President Biden to Kiev. Uh, Ukraine certainly came up, and the president, former president, refused to say uh, whether he thinks Ukraine or Russia, he would like to see either Ukraine or Russia win this war. Uh, here is Chris Christie, not the former president, you know his comments, Chris Christie speaking to um, uh, talk show host Hugh Hewitt. I think he's a coward, and I think he's a puppet of Putin. There's no other conclusion to come to. He wouldn't say last night that Ukraine should win the war. I mean, I was stunned. It was To me, it was the most stunning moment of the debate. It was pretty stunning, Sabrina. That was a, you would think uh, uh, you could tee that up and be easy for Trump to hit that out of the park. <laughs> I mean, is it stunning after his, oh, yeah, when you think look at his posture toward yeah. Russia over the course of the last uh, several years? And he has been um, very skeptical of U.S. support for Ukraine in this war, uh, and not just about s sending aid and military weapons in general. He um, has made comments uh, that haven't gone so far as to say he doesn't want Ukraine to win, uh, but certainly that cast doubt on his uh, position in, in the conflict. And I think, you know, we all remember when, as president, he stood next to uh, President Putin and sided with the Kremlin uh, over U.S. intelligence on yep. the question of whether or not Russia interfered in the 2016 election. Um, so I, I think at this point, it's, it's not terribly surprising um, that Trump is reluctant to be critical uh, of or take a position directly against Moscow. Um, I think it also honestly, though, does give you a sense of where some of the Republican parties uh politics have have moved when it comes to the question of of Ukraine because one of the big themes that we've seen as the war is now in its second year is a growing chorus of Republicans who have called uh for the US to either seize um its aid to Ukraine or who've signaled that they would vote down a future aid package and some of that tone I think has actually been set um mm -hmm. by former president Trump and oh, yeah. and and I think that, you know, so to me, look, like the, the bigger question, though, I will say that's just one one thing that's important to keep in mind is it gives you a window into the Republican Party's thinking. And two is, um, you know, if he is president, which he could be once again, uh, what does that mean for the war in Ukraine? Um, and, you know, he he claims he would end it in a day, which we know he, he won't. Um, he, but, 
you know, I think that could mean a significant scaling back of U.S. support for Ukraine. Or we, we don't really know what it means. But yeah. certainly, I think there are a lot of people who are very concerned uh, looking at those comments. Uh, and, and finally, in terms of issues, uh, Abby, you've raised uh, the issue of Jean Carroll a couple of times. So here is uh, the president, again, the day after a jury ruled against him, um, saying that, in fact, uh, he did sexually assault Jean Carroll and he did defame her. Uh, here's the president. Former president. I have no idea who the hell. She's a Mr. whack president, job. You, you did not testify. Uh, note, of course, the uh, the audience, again, loving all of his mocking of uh, Jean Carroll. Perilous legal grounds, if nothing else, Abby. Uh, yes, and she told the New York Times she was considering another uh, de- or to, an, a defamation lawsuit. I, I mean, I think it's one thing for Trump to be on television saying these things, and but that doesn't mean it's registering or um, that it's swaying people. And the most important demographic in this next presidential election are suburban college-educated women. And, you know, we've all seen the statistics. Many, many women have been attacked and assaulted. And just trying to imagine being laughed at after you've come forward when most women Mm -hmm. don't, I I don't know how that's helpful politically to Donald Trump. And so um, it it just kind of shocked me to see that. And I, you know, I just wonder... In the audience, you know, being would they? Is there any other candidate for president who they would react that way to, of allegation or uh, of having a jury say he is liable for assault and being thinking that's funny? I mean, would they treat Ronald Reagan that way or any other can? You know, not that Ronald Reagan ever did anything like that, but is this unique to Trump or is this now a desensitization, desensitization of this good. issue? Yeah, good question. Uh, so, Jeff, when it was all over. President Biden responded. He responded with a very short tweet. Um, And his tweet simply said, quote, it's simple, folks. Do you want four more years of that? Um, What does that tell us, Jeff, I think, about the Biden campaign? Less is more? Uh, For now, anyway. um, Certainly certainly less is more now with the Biden campaign because there's been some consternation about the fact that they haven't fully set their campaign up yet. And yeah. they're still getting it off the ground. So, but also because less, Trump is, less is literally more right now. But yeah, um, and, and Trump is kind of making their case for them, right? Yes, I mean Biden's sales pitch is exactly what it was four years ago. Um, Trump is an existential threat. I'm the guy who can beat him. I've done it before. Uh, whatever other problems I have, namely my age, you can overlook that because I'm the guy who gets you through Biden. And we don't know if other Democrats can do that. Um, I also thought it was telling from the from the pool reports that Biden was on Air Force One during the CNN <laughs> town hall, and yeah. he he did not have it on TV. Um, the, yeah. the press who was traveling with him had to had to figure out how to tune into CNN themselves because uh, because the, the TVs on on Air Force One were on. I think they were on MSNBC. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's telling also. There was, it was definitely a message there. And believe it or not, there was more news than the, the CNN Donald Trump town hall, uh, which we need to get to and we will get to after a uh, quick break here on uh, the Bill Press Pod. Stay with us with our panelists, Sabrina Siddiqui, Abby Livingston and Jeff Dufour. And we will be right back. 
And today's podcast, today's roundtable, is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, those good men and women of the Teamsters Union, America's largest union, America's most diverse labor union under President Sean O'Brien, representing every facet of the American labor force, uh, from vegetable workers in California, brewery workers in St. Louis, construction workers in Las Vegas, bakery workers up in Maine. They, As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the good members of the Teamsters Union and thank them for their great work uh, on behalf of all Americans and especially for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at teamster, teamster.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's panel here on uh, the Bill Press Pod and our Reporters Roundtable. Jeff Dufour, editor-in-chief of the National Journal, Street Journal. It was in a new, another New York courtroom uh, on Thursday that uh, Congressman George Santos walked in, uh, charged with 13 counts of money laundering, fraud, and uh, lying, stealing money, whatever, uh, walked out of the courthouse and vowed he's going to fight it, and he is innocent. Here is the congressman. The reality is, is it's a witch hunt, because <laughs> it, it makes no sense that in four months, four months, five months, I'm indicted. You have Joe Biden's entire family receiving deposits. <laughs> Not even reporters could take that, Abby. Uh, what do we think? Is the clock running on George Santos, or does he ride this out? Oh, I think he is in a heap of trouble, and he may not even understand it right now, uh, based on his uh, arrogance. Um, what I can say is he is a unique person to watch, but I spent a lot of time on the Hill and just watching politics, and it seems like every few years someone like that explodes a, a Governor Blagojevich type. And so I, I think he's in a lot more trouble than he lets on. Well, um, Jeff, here's one congressman, Steve Womack, from a Republican from Arizona, who basically is saying, OK, enough's enough. Would it be better if he resigned? Oh, absolutely. It's a distraction. And it's a punchline for a lot of uh, commentary regarding the Republican Party that we don't need. Mm-hmm. So do you think there'll be any movement to expel him, Jeff? Politics here are a bit of a mixed bag for McCarthy. On the one hand, the, the formal charges and his and if he gets convicted uh, makes the politics a little easier for McCarthy uh, because he can say we've let the process run its course and now he's convicted and we have to expel him. 
But then on the other hand, McCarthy has all along, and he still is, trying to let this process play out as long as possible um, because Santos's district in Long Island is a very swingy district. Neither party has much of an advantage. So if, if there is a special election, it could very well swing Democratic and take McCarthy's majority from the current nine seats down to seven seats, leaving him with only a, a, a three-seat margin. Uh, and remember, Santos was the guy who cast the deciding vote on the budget bill yeah. last week. So that's also top of mind for McCarthy. He may need Santos's vote for as long as possible. Well, that's the reality, Sabrina, isn't it? I mean, that for now, they can't afford to leave to lose even one Republican, right? Kevin McCarthy cannot. Uh, and even though McCarthy has said he would not support Santos for re-election, he needs his vote now. Well, right. And he has, he's not calling on him to resign. Right. I mean, that, that's just the reality. I mean, he said if a person is indicted, then they're not on committees. Um, but then they have the right to vote and they have a right to go to, they obviously have to go to trial and that he'll, could be able, he will be able to continue to serve uh, as, as, a, as a congressman. And I think that, you know, a lot of it, it does have to do with the margins. Um, now, the future could change, according to McCarthy and his aides, if uh, Santos is found guilty. Um, but look, I, I think that, you know, some of this also, I, I, just to bring it full circle from where we began this conversation, is the post-Trump era, right? Um, I mean, I, it, you know, I think that has fundamentally changed what, politicians can and cannot get away with. And so things that used to be immediately career ending, I mean, just the embellish or, or, or warrant a resignation, just the embellishment within and of itself, um, or the, the, the fabrication of the biography once upon a time would have likely led to a lawmaker's resignation. Yep. But now I think people can um, really double down and, 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 play the victim and, and and hold on because that's sort of the environment that I think we we live in where a lot more um, of this, whether it's, you know, whether it's embellishment or, or the fabrication or, or it's just, you know, or the idea of being under attack, you know, presenting yeah. some fake news um, or even being under investigation and making that appear to be politically motivated. That's kind of become more normalized within the political discourse. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is because that's what we saw at the highest office in the land. So it's not surprising that that um, has that tone has also trickled down to the U.S. Congress. You can even be charged with rape and survive as a candidate uh, these days. Um, so <laughs> let's I want to come back, Jeff, to the um, d uh, town hall just for one purpose, which is to move into talking about the debt ceiling. Uh, to a certain extent, Donald Trump did surprise us with his position on whether or not Congress should default on our debt and let the United States go bankrupt. Here's that quick clip. You once said that using the, that using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge uh, just could not happen. You, you said that when sure. you were in the That's Oval Office. That's why I was office. president. So, so why is it different now that you're out of office? Because now I'm not president. <laughs> so apparently Trump's a word that uh, we ought to just default on the debt because we're going to do it someday, sooner or later, anyhow, hasn't gone over well, not even with Republicans, Jeff. This is, uh, they were, look, they were supposed to have another meeting today, Friday, on this debt ceiling that got postponed for staff to have more negotiations, fine. Um, but 
let's assume they cut a deal that's amenable to McCarthy and Biden and Schumer. That to me is when McCarthy's problems really start mm-hmm. because anything he, anything he gives up in the negotiations likely means he's going to lose votes in his own conference. And even their initial budget, as we just said, only passed by two votes. So you think Chip Roy and Matt Gates, et cetera, are going to swallow whatever he hashes out with Biden? And now Trump has essentially given these guys uh, permission to to stonewall and march toward uh, and march toward a default if it increases their negotiating power. Uh, so I think this this lessens the chance of of any sort of a grand bargain uh, short of a, a discharge a discharge petition which needs democratic votes to get done. Right. So Sabrina, it does look like the break here is not so at least to me. Tell me if you think I'm wrong. Between not so much between Biden and uh, House Republicans as between House Republicans and Senate Republicans. More and more Senate Republicans, in, starting with Mitch McConnell, are saying we are not going to default on our debt. Yeah, and I think that's not, uh, frankly, dissimilar to the dynamic that we saw um, under President Obama when you had a Democratic president, a Democratic-controlled Senate, and a Republican-led House, right? And they had to deal with the debt ceiling. And a lot of times it was then-Speaker Boehner who was grappling with, you know, the Tea Party caucus, um, you know, the the fringe uh, members uh, within the House Republican conference. And McConnell, who in the minority in the Senate, looking at, you know, the White House and the control of the Senate, having to sort of be more pragmatic and say, look, like, you know, it's, 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 it's something has to give and Republicans, you know, they're not, they're, they're not ultimately in the, I mean, they're in the house majority, but they're not, they have less leverage. Um, I, I, the question now becomes how is it done? Right. And I think that, you know, noticeably the white house is not, is not like completely ruling out a short-term extension. Um, you know, they, they kind of, they've kind of talked about it in different ways and said, no, no, we're not looking at a short-term extension, but then they haven't unequivocally ruled it out. And I think part of that is because um, that may be how this all ends, which is just kicking the can down the road. And then you could tie it to potentially the, um, if, if there's a short-term extension, it could be something that they revisit when funding for the government is negotiated in the fall. And then you can frame it as a clean debt ceiling increase if you can get to some kind of deal around government spending in the fall. And Republicans will probably walk away and say they were able to secure spending cuts Mm -hmm. or they were able to secure concessions. And so everyone walks away with their own narrative if you are able to kick this can down to the fall in theory. Uh, But you have to just get to that short-term extension to prevent a default on the debt first. And and there's also this, uh, not deadline, but this this dynamic of President Biden having to leave for the G7 in Asia. So there's yeah. a lot of urgency right. I think, around getting it done. Um, and I, I really do think at this point, it's a, well, in the famous last words, it's a question of how, not so much as if. Right. That would be a win-win for everybody. But as you point out, we are not there yet. Um, so I'd like to just wrap by, by the way, I have to add that uh, Abby Livingston uh, is no longer with us. There was a fire alarm in her building. Um, we're sure that Abby is safe, but um, she had to uh, follow the orders of the fire department. So um, we're, we, with uh, Sabrina and Jeff, uh, I'd like to wrap by just asking you, when you look at, now it's a long way to go, but 
when you look at the Republican primary today, after the Gene Carroll verdict, after the CNN town hall, where we are today with who's in and who's out, Jeff, start with you. Does Donald Trump have the Republican nomination locked up? Uh, it sure seems that way with the major caveat that we're 18 months out and, and we're still yeah. a year out from deciding who the nominee is going to be officially. Um, a lot can happen, like even more indictments, for instance. But I've uh, I've given up predicting that more legal peril on Trump's part is going to move the needle among his supporters. Um, I think we saw on Wednesday night in New Hampshire a microcosm of where the GOP base is. They're, mm-hmm. they're not only buying what Trump is selling, but they want more of it. Um, and the poll that came out from ABC Washington Post last weekend, um, I think emboldened Trump's team more. Uh, that showed Trump leading Biden by six in a hypothetical matchup. Um, again, horse race polls 18 months out uh, ahead of the time hypothetical don't tell you that much. Um, but it means that, number one, Trump's people want to stay the course. They think what he's doing is working. It's clearly putting him in a, in a good position. And then it also tells me that, uh, you know, even if it's 18 months out, Democrats still like to panic. And we've seen some of that as well. Right. So, Sabrina, again, the question is uh, not the general election 2024, but the Republican nomination in 2024. Uh, we know who's in and who's out now. Um, we're not yet in, maybe. Uh, at this point, do you think Trump's got it? basically nailed down? I think it's his to lose. and I. But I would say I think it was his to lose even b- before the town hall. I mean, the mm-hmm. moment he launched his uh, campaign for you know returning to the White House, it was always going to be his to lose because, it, because the polls have demonstrated, and just if you interview any, any number of people from the Republican primary electorate, um, you know, those conversations have always revealed that he remains a very popular figure with the base, um, and, and they, many of them still see him as, as the leader of the party and look, so much can happen. So much can happen between now and the actual nominating contests. Um, but I think that he, you know, is going to be really difficult for any of the others to, to beat because the other piece of it that we've seen is the rest, he is, he's been destroying governor Ron DeSantis just relentlessly attacking DeSantis because that's who he has seen as his main competition. But DeSantis has hardly hit back because all of them see his popularity, meaning the others who are either in the field or contemplating getting in the field, they see his popularity and they know that they can't actually hit back because attacking Trump is actually unpopular, right? So they're in a really difficult position where they can only prey on his vulnerabilities so much because of how popular he is, and all the while, he can just pick them apart bit right. by bit. And so I think it's just going to be the same dynamic, frankly, that we saw in 2016. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. all these Republicans on on Capitol Hill who are looking at the town hall and saying, oh, uh, we don't know if we can support him, and we really are going to wait and give other people another look. They We've seen this movie many, many times. They are all going to line up behind him yeah. the moment it's clear that he's going to be the nominee. And it's certainly impossible for any of those others to beat Trump if they refuse to take him on, right? They can't, they can't refuse to criticize him and then hope to beat him in a primary. So I share, your, uh, share both you and uh, Jeff your point, uh, your take on the Republican primary today. And with that, 
We thank you. Thanks to Abby Livingston in absentia. Uh, and thank you, Sabrina. Thank you, Jeff, for being with us today. Uh, but you can't run away before you tell us what was your favorite story of the week, the thing that really caught your attention and stopped you in your tracks, even for just uh, a moment. Uh, Sabrina, start us off. You'll be shocked. It's not a dog story this time. Oh, no. I thought the world's oldest dog for sure was going to be your story. I was maybe going to do the world's oldest dog. Can we do the world's <laughs> oldest dog? Whatever you want. Your favorite story. I don't want to... Okay. Well, they, well, you mentioned the world's oldest dog, so people can look it up. But uh, we had a piece in the Wall Street Journal about how workers are happier than they've been in decades. Whoa. Huh. I thought that was nice. Yeah. You know, a nice way to end the week. Job satisfaction hit a 36-year high. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the the reasons behind that were that the quality of jobs improved as wages and work flexibility increased and workers huh. also changed jobs yes. uh, during the pandemic and right. found positions where they felt they were a better fit. Yeah. And so 62%, just over 62% of U.S. workers said they were satisfied with their jobs. That's according to new data from the conference board. Um, and I, I think it's 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 just like a, a nice uh, dynamic, yeah. but it also I think is important because as some employers are very eager to go back to whatever pre-pandemic mm-hmm. workforce looked like or the pre-pandemic workplace looked like, uh, I think it demonstrates that the ways that the, the the ways in which the pandemic actually changed how we do our jobs, there are some positives to take away from that. Yeah. And it had and and you know that that change that we've seen in flexibility and the ability, and the ability to have a hybrid role, um, that's something that ought to stay. Uh, and you know, work work worker satisfaction leads to better job performance. That's something that we know mm-hmm. that's tied mm-hmm. that's tried and tested. So I, I just thought that was a nice note to end on. That workers are happier than they've been in decades, and you can read it on the Wall Street Journal. And there's a nice little graphic at the top with a bunch of smiley faces, and that put a smile on. <laughs> Yeah, people. A lot of people got, got out of got out of jobs that they didn't like, and got into uh, better jobs. And uh, a lot of them are working from home at least two or three days a week. So interesting, interesting. Uh, here's a guy who's been happy. He's very happy with his job, both the way it was and the way it is today. Jeff, your favorite story. Uh, my favorite story of the week is dumb, but I think we need a palate <laughs> cleanser after the last week of news. Um, <laughs> I have a public service announcement for everyone. Do oh. not do not cheat at fishing in the state of Ohio. Uh-oh. Oh, yes. Ohio takes its fishing competitions, apparently, very seriously. Uh, two gentlemen entered a freshwater fishing competition in Cleveland last week, and they came back with uh, the winning walleye. They won by so much, however, that the judges became suspicious. Uh-oh. And when the judges cut open the walleye, oh, they found no. weights and other uh, fillets of other fish stuffed inside. What? You know what? Yes. How, yes. how could they, they do that? Well, they caught the fish and then they jammed some, some oh, extra weight God. into the fish. So uh, do you know what happened to these guys? They were each sentenced to 10 days in jail a $2,500 fine, a three-year suspension of their fishing licenses, (laughs) and one of the guys had to surrender his $100,000 fishing boat. So again, I implore you, if you find yourself in Ohio and you come across a fishing competition, do not cheat whatever you do. The long arm of the law will come get you. Well, I have to say on behalf of all of my fishermen friends, it serves them right. (laughs) (laughs) 
How dare them cheat at fishing? I think I think of all of a lot of us have uh, <coughs> cheating fishing stories we could tell if we only had the if we only had the time. Uh, that was that was great, Jeff. So my favorite story of the week, you know, I just came back from a wonderful, uh, glorious five or six weeks in Italy, and uh, I wouldn't say I'm glad to be home, but I was when I read this story yesterday. There is a new crisis in Italy. The price of pasta has gone up, uh, up 17.5% in some parts of the country over last year, 25% in other parts of the country, up to 50% more than last year to buy pasta, uh, whether you're buying it to make or buying it in a restaurant over last year. This has created such a crisis in Italy, um, because Italy can't survive without pizza and pasta, that the government has a summoned a crisis group, which is meeting next week to see what they can do to um, get the price of pasta under control and back where it was last year. So uh, there's there's a, a national crisis in Italy over the uh, price of pasta. Mamma mia. Hope they get it, <laughs> hope they get it solved before I go back the next time. And with that, Sabrina Siddiqui, thank you so much again for joining us on the roundtable. Jeff Dufour, good to have you with us as well. And again, thanks to Abby Livingston. Thanks to all of you for joining us. And uh, we invite you to, hope you have a great weekend and then invite you to come back next Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, where we're going to be looking at a new book that talks all about the question all of us have been asking, what the hell happened to Lindsey Graham? We get into that on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod next Tuesday. We'll see you then.